We've started the book of 1 Corinthians, and before I dive into the text itself, I'm going to get a, a little bit of a review and kind of like a vision of where we're going. So last week we introduced the book. So what the book of 1 Corinthians is, is a letter from Paul the Apostle, who was one of the early church leaders. He's a fantastic guy. He wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. He had founded this church, but a few years had passed since he had been there, and there were some problems going on, some pretty pretty gnarly problems. And so he heard about them and he decided to write this letter to correct those problems in order to be able to instruct them how to live in a world that's kind of going crazy. How to live in a world that is very contrary to the Christian faith. How to live in a world where there's a lot of problems and difficulties and pressures. And so he he instructs them how to live and also um, instructs them in truth in light of all of those things going on. And so we talked about that a little bit last week. And then we talked about how the very first chapter deals with the sense of belonging, where when we are a part of the body of Christ, we're able to have a community, but ultimately where true community and unity is found is with our relationship with God, the relationship that will never go away and will last forever. But then tonight, what we see in chapter two is he then transitions and he starts talking about basically the question of, how do I know that I am saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Not so much, how do I know if Christianity is real? That's what we're talking about on Sundays with Matt. Matt's going through the the questions of doubts and things, and he's talking about basically, how do we know that Christianity is real? But what he talks about here is, how do we know that my faith is authentic and genuine? Like, I might believe that this is real, but how do I know that I am actually interacting with it correctly? How do I know that my faith is genuine? I remember uh, when I was, uh, I don't remember how old I was, but it was a, it was a little bit ago now, and um, I was trying to go to sleep, and I was just laying in bed. You know how sometimes your brain just starts, like, flying while you're trying to go to bed, and you're like, no, I'm trying to sleep right now, and your brain's like, but what about tacos? And you're like, why tacos? <laughs> And so my brain was going one of those things and all of a sudden started thinking about like, what if this whole Christianity thing isn't real? Or, I I think it is, but what if my own faith isn't real? What if my faith isn't genuine? And it started like making me spiral and I was like, if that's the case, then like my whole life is like meaningless. (laughs) And then like, when I die, if I don't end up being with God and I just either go to hell or I'm not actually in his presence, like that's just, everything's going to start spiraling. And I just started to really get in my head and I was living with my parents. And, and so, um, I was definitely too old to like go down and like ask my parents about a bad dream. So it was probably like last year or something. No, it was, (laughs) it was when I was like 12 or something. I don't know. So I go downstairs and I'm like, mom, dad, like, I'm like struggling with this and they were like oh okay so they just prayed for me and stuff and like sometimes like we all get in our heads in that way and you're like okay is my faith actually genuine and I think in some senses that's important for us to ask is okay I might think this is true but am I actually interacting with it correctly or is my faith actually real and this is what Paul addresses and what he talks about and so tonight I won't be able to answer every question that deals with like how do I know I'm saved or not? It could literally be like a four or five week long series that we do, which we might do at some point. I don't know. But I won't be able to answer everything, but I hope to at least give insight on at least one aspect of how do we know that I'm saved or how do I know I'm a Christian? So chapter two, verse one, it says, 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So remember, he had established this church a few years prior, and he says, when I came, I didn't use rhetorically beautiful words and speeches and rhetoric and all kinds of things. Instead, he said, I deliberately made it simple. I deliberately made it as plain as possible so that way you wouldn't have a faith in, um, faith in man's wisdom or a, a faith in something worldly, but it would truly be based on the power of God. And it says that he came in weakness and in fear. And um, he had just come from Athens right before he went to Corinth to establish this church. And when he was in Athens, he was basically trying to like, um, he was talking with the um, philosophers on Mars Hill um, or the Areopagus, which is a little hill where all the philosophers would get together and talk about things. And he went and he had this brilliant speech and it was all really awesome and, and it was super good. And at the end of it, like three people came to know the Lord, no church was established, and he left. And he goes to Corinth and he came in weakness and in trembling. It's like literally in the Greek, like knees knocking, like, all right, now I'm going to determine to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. No rhetoric, no nothing, just Jesus. And a whole church was planted. And so then it goes on in verse six, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So that's the text for tonight. And what we're going to see is first the origin of our faith, where the source, the origin of our faith. Then we're going to see the revelation or, or the showing or the display of our faith. And then finally, we're going to see the person of faith. So first, the origin of our faith. Where does our faith come from? What's its source? Where is its origin? And over and over again, you might have noticed that Paul repeatedly says that it is not of the wisdom of this world. 
It says it in uh, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. Or in verse 6, it says it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age which are doomed to pass away. Over and over again, he says it's not the wisdom of this world. In verse 13, he says, and we do not impart the words taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit. And so over and over again, he says the origin of our faith is not from humans. It's not from anything temporal. It's from something divine. It's from something out there, something transcendent. It's from God himself. It is not from this world. And Paul, when he comes, he, as I said, he deliberately tried to do everything he could to make that clear. He, he, he decided I'm going to try and make that divine origin so clear so that I just totally get out of the way. And when we do ministry, if some of you are thinking about doing ministry or like I'm thinking about doing ministry too, one of the main things we have to keep in mind is that if there's anything in our methods of doing ministry that distracts from Christ and him crucified, that distracts from the pure message of the gospel, it ought to be cut away because that is what matters. Because that's the whole focus. He's saying, I deliberately decided to make it as clear as possible that our faith is rested in the power of God, in something divine, not in human words of wisdom. So the origin of our faith, it's not in human wisdom, but instead it's in the divine, but it's also not from the rulers. Look with me at verse six. It says, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. So when we think about our age, when we think about our time, what do the rulers or the influential or the smart, educated people, how do they think? How do they process the world and how do they view the world? And from what I can understand, the general um, way in which people view the world right now is through a postmodern lens. And you guys might have heard of postmodernism before. And if you are not philosophically minded, I apologize. But if you are, I hope this is interesting because I find it fascinating. <laughs> um, but what postmodernism is, is some people think that postmodernism basically just says, oh, there's no truth, so it, do it doesn't matter. And so there there's no truth. And then Christians come and say, well, there is truth, so that's just wrong. And I'm saying there might be some misunderstanding happening there. <laughs> what postmodernism is, from what I understand it, is postmodernists think that we are so confined by our cultural contexts, by our surrounding areas, that we can't rise above them in order to, to obtain objective truth and knowledge. So in other words, you and I are so confined in our Southern Oregon culture that we can't transcend it, we can't get above it, we can't be objective enough. We're too subjective. We're too influenced by our culture. We're too influenced by the people around us. We're too influenced by all these other things that we can't get above it in order to be able to see objective truth. That the objective truth may or may not be there, but we can't get to it because we're so defined by what's inside, so uh, defined and um, influenced by what's inside of us or what's around us. Yeah. Objective truth? Yeah, that's perfect. So objective truth would be truth that is true for all people at all times. So something that is totally consistent throughout the entire world at all times. Yeah. Like your shirt is white. Yeah, like my shirt is white. No matter what it, time or it, or it is, my shirt is white. Could be. And so 
um, something that everyone has to align themselves to because it's something that is real and it's something that is um, objective, meaning it's not um, subjective, means it changes depending on your perspective. So depending on your perspective, you have a different view of something. Objective says it doesn't matter your view, it's still the same. And so they say, really, you can't get to that because you have a perspective and you can't get out of your perspective. And so if, therefore it's all subjective and therefore you can't really get to it. Does that make sense? Following me? So that's kind of what postmodernism means. And that's kind of what the rulers of this age, you could say, that's kind of what they think at this point from what I understand. And here's the most amazing thing. What the gospel says is the gospel says is that truth came down. That God himself, the objective standard of truth, the definer of truth, the origin of truth, he came down and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, even if you can't get out of your context, even though you do have subjective perspectives, God comes down and enters into your subjective uh, perspectives and gives you objective truth. And that is one of the most amazing things, that God himself would come down and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is something that no other religion actually claims. Every other religion says, I'm going to point you to the right direction to eventually get to truth. I'm a prophet, I'm a sage, I'm a wise person, and here's the things that you need to do in order to be able to experience the truth. Jesus comes and says, I am the truth. I have come down, and now I have shown it to you. So when we think about the origin of our faith, it's not from someone transcending their cultural or societal milieu in order to be able to get to objective truth. The origin of our faith is God has come down and he has revealed himself to us, and he has shown himself to us. And what he has shown is incredible wisdom. So it says over and over again here that the wisdom that we teach is not of this world, but instead this wisdom is the power of God. It's the truth of God. It's Christ and him crucified. Think about the gospel for a second. Here's the gospel. <laughs> that God perfect, almighty, created humanity, totally without sin, and yet they rebelled. They turned away, and they said, I don't want anything to do with you, and therefore, they are liable to punishment. They are liable in order to be able to pay for their sins, for their transgressions. And God from up in heaven knew that that was going to happen, and, and, and when he saw it all happen, he decided that he, he thought through, okay, how do I both be just and therefore not let all of the evils of this world just happen? How can I still be just? How can I still pay for the wrong? Because there's genuine wrong that happens in the world that can't just be swept under the rug or else God is not just. How can I truly pay for this? How can I truly deal with this? And yet at the same time, I'm gracious and I'm kind and I'm loving and I don't want to punish them. I instead want to love them because I created them and I long to have a relationship with them. And so how can God both be just and then also forgiving? 
And that's what Romans chapter 3 talks about, where it says that God himself, he then took our sin, he took the punishment, so that way God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. God can be forgiving and just at the same time. That's so incredibly smart. <laughs> like that's, to say it reverently, like I mean this, like that's the ultimate loophole. <laughs> God looked down and was like, I'm going to pay for the sins and forgive them. I'm going to do it all myself. I wouldn't have thought of that. That only God could think of that. It's of divine origin. And because it's of divine origin, that leads us to the second point, which it must be revealed. Our faith has been revealed. It means our faith has been shown by another. There, there's a word in here in verse 7. It says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. That word there for secret is musterion in the Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek originally. And that word for musterion, when you see it in Paul's writings, um, it means something that was previously unknown, but through the gospel has been now made known. So it was previously unknown, and now it has been made known. And how has it been made known? It has been made known through the gospel, and it has also been made known through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals the origin of our faith, reveals who God is. We see this in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So he says that the Spirit of God has revealed this because the Spirit knows everything. And he gives kind of a funny metaphor where he says the spirit of a person, the immaterial part of us, our minds, our thoughts, our emotions, the, the immaterial part of us as people, that's the only part of us that knows what's going on on the inside. We can say something, but on the inside, we really know what, what's going on. Or at least some of us actually know what's really going on inside. Sometimes that can be a little conflicting there. So typically though, the spirit, the immaterial person, knows what's going on. And he's saying that the Spirit of God knows what's going on on the inside. He knows everything, and he's revealed it to us. He's the one who has shown it to us. And here's where it gets, here's where it gets crazy. Well, first, if you're wondering, what does the Holy Spirit do? I almost forgot to say this. A lot of people are like, what does the Holy Spirit do? How do I get in touch with the Holy Spirit? How do I follow after him? What, what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And all of those things. And he's going to talk about those later on in 1 Corinthians. But one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to reveal to us the truths of the gospel and to reveal to us the truths that are found in Scripture. That's one of his primary roles. So if you want to be in touch with the Holy Spirit, then read God's Word as he will reveal it to us. That is the primary way in or, for us to interact with the Holy Spirit and have a relationship with God is through God's word, the Holy Spirit makes it known. That's what it means. That's what the Holy, one of the primary things that the Holy Spirit does in this world. But in verse 14, it says that the natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It must be revealed because its origin is from God, but it also must be revealed because you and I can't understand it on our own. It says the natural man cannot understand the things of God. The natural man. That means all of us before we believed in Jesus, before we had the Holy Spirit come inside of us, we all could not understand the things of God. There's a doctrine based off of this called the doctrine of inability. 
which means you and I are unable to follow after God, to understand the things of God, to know about him. We are unable. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't think. (laughs) We are unable to process and understand the spiritual truths. It had to be revealed to us from God. So then that leads us to our final point, and we're getting close. This leads us to our final thing. From the very beginning, how do I know that I've been saved? How do I know that that has happened? Because Stephen, what you're saying is, is you are, I am completely unable, completely unable. It has to be God's revelation and its origin is from God. Therefore, from start to finish, we're totally dependent upon God. How do I know that that's actually happened? How do I know that I'm actually saved? How do I know that my faith is genuine and real and authentic? And this leads us to the person of faith. The person of faith, it says in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The spiritual person. There is a guy named Jonathan Edwards, which I think I've talked about a few times before. He was a leader in the mid-1700s in America, a church leader. And through his preaching and evangelism and ministry, he brought about the first great awakening in the Americas. He was one of the primary leaders of it. And basically what was happening in America is that thousands of people were being saved. Thousands of people were coming to faith. And there were these dramatic outward show and expressions of faith in God. And so he would be preaching, and he's a Puritan, which if you know church history, Puritans are pretty like suit and tie kind of people. And so he's like being Mr. Proper, preaching, and all of a sudden people would just start weeping in the crowd. And he would be preaching like, what is happening? (laughs) And then people would just be falling on their knees and having these over and abundant outward show of, of expressions of faith. And he, like a good Puritan, decided to write a book (laughs) and decided to study and was like, okay, how do I know? There's thousands of people getting saved. How do I know which one of these is authentic? Which one of these is real? The exact question of tonight. And when I was in college, I, I was given this book by him, and it's called Religious Affections, and this is where I'm getting all of this from. And the first third of the book, if you want to read it, it's honestly fantastic, but it's also written in language from the 1700s and took me over a year to read. It is so dense, but it's great. <laughs> so with that plug, yeah, you can go for it. Um, the first third talks about the essence of our faith. The second third, uh, which he defines as uh, the, the first third, the essence of our faith, is really a religious affections. In, a, in other words, it's a heart and a desire for God, a fundamental change of being, where now our affections, our desires, our loves have been switched from the things of this world to the things of, this, uh, to the things of God. There's a fundamental switch there, a fundamental change that's happened. And then he, after explaining what the essence is, he then goes and describes 12 different signs, 12 different expressions, 12 different um, behaviors 
or things that have happened to people that you would typically say, yep, because this has happened, I know that I've been fundamentally changed. I know that there has been this radical change in my life. Since this has happened, I know that's happened. And he goes through 12 of them and he says, every single one of them doesn't actually prove that you're saved. Doesn't actually prove that you believe in God. And as I was reading it, it was just wrecking me. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I've thought that before. That's probably a good one. Oh no, it's not. Oh, okay. Um, maybe the next one. And so it goes 12 different signs that people typically use to show that they're saved. And he says, nope. And then the final third, he builds you back up. And he goes through 12 signs that do show that there's been a radical change, that their conversion truly has taken place. And the very first one he draws from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what we just read. And he says the fundamental difference between a non-believer and a believer is that that believer is spiritual. That there's a spiritual change that has happened. We just read it. The spiritual man, the spiritual person. You might be saying, okay, what does that mean? Jonathan Edwards, help us out. Here's what he says. <laughs> Thus Christians are called spiritual persons because they are born of the Spirit and because of the indwelling and holy influences of the Spirit of God in them. So here's what he says. They are called spiritual persons because God himself, the Holy Spirit, has come inside of us. Now just, we've heard that before, the indwelling of God. If you've been in church for any period of time, you've probably heard this, but just pause and think about it for a second. The Holy Spirit, who has existed forever in God himself who is almighty all-powerful all-good all-kind wrathful just omnipotent omnipresent all the omnis he as a person came down and is living inside <laughs> Jonathan Edwards says that changes everything that is a distinguishing mark of the Christian. When God himself comes inside of us, that is a radical shift. That is a radical change of character because God, God is so big, he's not just someone you invite in to be kind of like your help or guide on the side. He comes in and changes everything. I've heard it said, um, uh, there was a Say, um, say we were having a meeting and um, like me and my, me, I work with a family business. And so me and my brothers, are, we're all having a meeting together. And typically on Mondays afternoon at three o'clock is our standing uh, family meeting about the business. And so me and my brothers and my dad, we always know three o'clock Mondays till who knows how late. That's when we meet. <laughs> and say um, I'm sitting down and waiting and my middle brother comes in and he is like 15 minutes late. And he's like, hey, sorry, I'm late. I got hit by a bus and sits down. And we're like, what? <laughs> you got hit by a bus? He's like, yeah, I got hit by a bus. And, and we look at him. We don't see like any marks on him. We don't see any like road rash or broken limbs or nothing. And, and at that point, we'd probably be like, did you really get hit by a bus? Like, I don't know. I think you might just be making it up because you were late. The reality is, if, is if you get hit by a bus, stuff changes in you. <laughs> 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 you get broken. <laughs> like, 
it's like stuff happens. And I think, honestly, when God, who's way bigger than a bus, <laughs> comes inside of us, things change. It's a distinguishing mark. But finally, he says, not only is there the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but then there's also the influences of the Spirit of God in him, in them. And I think the influences, or in other words, the, the actions or the, um, the changes that the Holy Spirit brings can be described by, we have the mind of Christ. Here, the last phrase. The mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? I thought about it for a little bit, and I really think that when you think about what Christ did and who Jesus was, he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit upon him. But when you think about his decision-making process of how he lived his life, it was for the glory of the Father. Total, unreserved glory of the Father, not self-seeking, not self-protection, not selfish at all, but instead totally focused on the Father, totally focused in obedience to him, regardless of his own self-interest. And that's exactly where Jonathan Edwards goes. The next distinguishing mark is that there is a love for God that is not contingent upon the benefits that he gives us or the blessings that he gives us, but a love for God simply for who he is. Because if we have a love for God that is contingent upon the blessings that he gives us, that is at its core selfish. And when we think about the mind of Christ, he was not selfish. Instead, he gave of himself for the glory of his Father. And here's, here, here's, here's the quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says, That kind of affection to God or Jesus Christ, the affection that's selfish, which does not thus properly arise from self-love, cannot be truly a gracious and spiritual love. If it's coming from self-love or for protection or for, for the benefits, it's a self-love, and it can't be a distinguishing mark of God in our lives, for self-love is entirely natural. Everyone loves themselves, and everyone acts on self-interest. So therefore, it can't truly be a mark of how we know we're saved. And so, that then leads us to all right, Stephen, I hear you. I see that we're supposed to love God first and have it not be contingent upon the blessings that he gives us. But as a Christian, I don't feel it. I don't... Um, I, I, I want that, but I know that it's not there, that I still love God for what he gives, or I still love other things more than God. And I want to tell you that what the true Christian is is a Christian who wants God to be first. A non-Christian doesn't really want God to be first. A Christian wants God to be first, wants to love God for who he is. And, you know, we struggle. We struggle to have that be true in our lives. I think, can think of so many times in my life where I loved other things more than God. And as we struggle through this life, trying to keep God at the forefront, that struggle is Christian. That struggle is what it means to walk out this life. And I think the story in Mark chapter 9 is the perfect explanation of this. In Mark chapter 9, we see Jesus. He's just come off the Mount of Transfiguration. He's come off of the Mount of Transfiguration, which is where um, the inner brilliance of his godness just exploded and shone out. 
And he comes down and he sees his disciples and they were there with a father and son and a big crowd around them. And the son, he was oppressed by a demon. And he has been so for years. And this demon was causing him to, to commit self-harm and all kinds of terrible things. And the disciples were trying to cast out the demon, but they couldn't do it. And so when Jesus shows up, all the crowd and the disciples turn to him and are like, can you do this? <laughs> like, what, we don't know what to do. And so Jesus comes up and he turns to the father and says, how long has this been happening? And, and he says, I believe it was for 12 years. And, and he says to the man, anything is possible for him who believes. And the father responds, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. Jesus hears that. He turns to the boy, rebukes it, and it says that the boy seized up, and then he went limp, and he looked like a corpse, and people thought he was dead. But Jesus goes and lifts him up, and he's restored. And I think if you're a Christian here tonight, you can relate to that father saying, Lord, I believe, I want you to be first. I want to love you with everything I have. I don't want to love the things of this world. I want you to be the first and foremost in my life, but help my unbelief because there's this big problem in my life. There's this big difficulty that I can't take care of and I don't know what to do with it. And you're saying that I have to believe and I'm trying to help my unbelief. And that prayer is the Christian prayer. That is the life of the Christian. <laughs> Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to be focusing on you more. Help you to be the center. Help you to be my true love. And when that happens, I know everything else will get taken care of. And as Jesus hears these prayers and as he heard the plea of the Father, he looked at the Son and he realized, I think he knew, that the reason why he could heal this Son was because the, he was going to take it. Was because he was going to take all of the oppression. He was going to take all of the pain. He was going to take all of the, the, the self-harm and, and, and all of the, 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 the difficulty. And he wasn't just going to fall down as if he was dead. He was truly going to die. He was truly going to die. So that way then he could look to, look to us who struggle with unbelief, he could look to us and, and say, I'm going to help you through your unbelief. I'm going to help you through this difficulty. And your little speck of belief, it doesn't matter the size of your belief. Because of what Jesus has done, because his, his death is so final, so complete, and his forgiveness is so total, you have, the amount of faith isn't the important thing. It's instead only important what you put your faith in. And if you put your faith in Jesus, it is as sure and as a matter of a fact as, as anything. I've used this illustration before, but it's, it's the object of our faith that matters and, and not the, the strength of our faith that matters. Because we can have a really strong faith in something that, that is ultimately faulty. Like there's like, like the bridges that, that might be a faulty bridge. I always think of the ones in Emperor's New Groove where they got these faulty bridges that are just ready to crash. And we might have confident faith where we go walking out on it, but boom, we fall through. 
Or you might be looking at, at, a, at a bridge that's as solid as the Golden Gate Bridge, and you might be worried, you might be putting your feet out on it, and you might not be totally secure and safe in it, but because it's strong, it will hold you. Because of what Jesus has done, the bridge is strong. So even the small amount of faith that we have will still be upheld because he is upholding it. So my heart for us is, as we go, we would pray the prayer of that Father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to believe in you more. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to believe in you. Help us to confess our faith in you. And I pray for the areas in our lives that are problematic, the areas in our lives where we don't love you with everything, that you would help us to love you. Thank you that it is not the strength of our faith that matters, but it's the object of our faith that matters. That you are strong, you are sure, you are consistent. And I pray that you would guide us, direct us, that we'd be totally focused on you. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.